and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 13th of October with me, Ian Welsh. Lots of voices on the podcast this week. When I was in Amsterdam at Innovation Forum's Future for Plastics and Packaging conference last week, I was delighted to speak with a number of panellists and participants. Coming up are some comments and reflections from UNEP's Laurence Mia Ikenal, Daniel Katz from the Overbrook Foundation and Made Forest Alliance, Sebastian Munden from RAP, Steve Harbin from the Plastic Collective, and my Innovation Forum colleagues, Katie Ball and Tanya Richard. Plus, in the next of Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson's Farmer Voices series is a conversation that she had with cotton farmer Kamunda Ben Satashbhai Tad Avi from Gujarat in India. That's all to come. First, though, is a regular roundup of some sustainable business news. criticism often made of the voluntary carbon markets and companies that buy carbon credits to offset their emissions is that those companies then carry on doing little to cut their own pollution with an ill-founded clear conscience. New research from Ecosystem Marketplace, a forest trends programme, has found that in fact companies engaging with the voluntary carbon market mostly are working hard to cut emissions in their own operations. Analysing CDP climate change programme data from 2022, researchers found that of the just over 7,400 companies disclosing activities, 822, or around 11%, bought project-based carbon credits. Of those companies, 59% reported an overall decrease in emissions because of actual cuts or switching to renewable energy. Only 33% of companies that were not engaged with the voluntary carbon market reported a similar reduction. The research also found that buyers of carbon credits are more likely to be engaged with their supply chains on emissions reductions and to have set science-based targets, in fact nearly three and a half times more likely than companies not participating in the volatile carbon markets. What to do with post-consumer waste in all its forms and utilise currently lost value continues to drive innovation. A new Danish startup has developed technology that can extract nutrients and oils from spent coffee grounds. Café Bueno has recently opened a refinery capable of producing 500 tonnes of coffee grounds a year, helped by a 2.5 million euro investment from the European Innovation Council. Research suggests that only 1% of the nutrients in coffee are used while brewing the estimated 2 billion cups of coffee consumed every day. Spent coffee grounds are also release carbon dioxide and methane as they break down in the environment. The Café Bueno refinery can upcycle the grounds into ingredients for food and cosmetic products, including prebiotic fibre, antioxidants, colorants, fats and emulsifiers. Whilst there has undoubtedly been progress over the past decade, the fact remains that many crop-based cooking oils and fats made from palm oil and soy have a deforestation risk problem, which has driven innovation in trying to find alternatives. One of the latest, as reported by news non-profit Grist, comes from California-based Zero Acre Farms, with its cultured oil product that is made from fermenting sugarcane. The company says that cultured oil requires 90% less land and releases 86% less greenhouse gas emissions than comparable products made from soybeans. And the product is gaining some traction, attracting millions of dollars of venture capital investment. It is created through a process where microorganisms break down sugarcane and convert the sugar into oil that is low in the saturated and polyunsaturated fats linked to health problems. The product is, however, at an early stage of development and full LCA results comparing it with its competitors are not yet public. Last week in Amsterdam, at the Future of Plastics and Packaging event, I spoke with Laurence Mia E. Canal, Programme Officer at the United Nations Environment Programme, Daniel Katz, Lead Environment Advisor at the Overbrook Foundation and Board Chair of Rainforest Alliance, Sebastian Munden, Chair of RAP, Steve Harbin, Co-Founder of Plastic Collective, and Innovation Forum's Katie Ball and Tanya Nishar. Joining me now is Laurence Mia E. Canals from UNEP. Welcome. Thank you, Ian. We were talking earlier about the Global Plastics Treaty. What are you hoping the impact of the treaty will be? The treaty is trying to address plastic pollution. And for that, we actually need to change the whole system, the way in which we have and we use plastics in the economy. That can only be achieved at the international level by setting the right boundaries, the right conditions, obligations, 
for all actors across the plastics life cycle to do their bit in ensuring that plastic is used in the economy but is kept out of the environment. How do you see other regulatory improvements helping alongside the Plastics Treaty? Well, we've seen a lot because of the lack of an international approach. We've seen a lot of countries coming forward with their own legislation. We see more and more of these legislative approaches that are dealing with the whole life cycle of plastics, and that's very encouraging. At the same time, because plastics work across boundaries, because the plastics value chain is international, many of the decisions can only be suboptimal when they are taken at a country or at a regional level. We need some boundaries and some conditions, some standard approaches that work the same everywhere. Are you recognising a greater need or a greater recognition of the need for alignment? Yes, absolutely. And I think particularly when we talk to the private sector, but we also talk to countries, many countries that are pushing for specific regulations, if their neighbour countries are not pushing for those regulations, well, we see cross-border issues, products that are banned in one country are imported illegally sometimes from another country. I think many, many actors are recognising that we need to work on this together, following similar approaches and, and aligned approaches. What then do you think the long-term approach will be in terms of life cycle analysis? I mean, it strikes me that that's a key part of all of this, is to develop a programme of full life cycle analysis across the board. Absolutely. And life cycle analysis is the most powerful tool that we have to assess sustainability of different options. It's absolutely indispensable that we use LCA, life cycle analysis, to compare different options that we have to go about things. If we're replacing problematic plastic products, what are we replacing them with? How are the alternatives more sustainable? So LCA is crucial for that. It's not enough. We need also other approaches. The issue as well with life cycle analysis is that we're seeing already companies, particularly private sector, using results of life cycle assessment or what they call life cycle assessment that don't follow international guidance. Sometimes they are only focusing on greenhouse gas emissions. Sometimes they are not assessing the full life cycle. They are not disclosing what type of conditions, what type of parameters they are using in their studies. So we need strong standards and strong guidance on how LCA can be used to assess the different options. Thinking back to the treaty again, I mean, what are your hopes for the next year? I mean, obviously we've got the, you know, the draft is out and everyone's looking at it. What are you hoping to see? And, and actually, I have to say also the zero draft that was, by the way, published a few weeks ago, but now we have it in all languages, so we have the final version. The zero draft is already a great contribution to the negotiation. Now negotiators have something concrete to look at. The zero draft was requested from the chair of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, and it looks at the whole life cycle. So it already proposes actions, obligations that would affect different stages of the life cycle of plastics, and it proposes different options. It obviously doesn't preclude any new options that the negotiators will want to bring in, but I think we have a very good starting place. The member states have a good starting place to advance. What I'm hoping is that we will quickly identify which are the points that are harder to discuss and that progress will be made, particularly also in the intersessional process, because just as a reminder, we have the third session of the INC now in November. We have two more sessions in spring 2024 and then at the end of 2024. We don't have a lot of time. I mean, the, the member states set themselves a very ambitious target in terms of achieving this agreement by the end of 2024. I think we're on a good footing to get there, but of course there's a lot of work to be done. Well, as you said, the full draft is now available. It was gratifying to see that many of the people at the event this morning, because you asked who's read it, and then several hands went up, which was great to see. And indeed, no doubt we'll return next year and find out where we got with the initial draft. But for now, Lawrence from UNEP, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Joining me now is Daniel Katz from the Overbrook Foundation and, of course, from Rainforest Alliance. Welcome, Daniel. 
Thank you. So we'll be talking about deposit return schemes and you mentioned a little bit in the session about what doesn't work. What doesn't work? When do deposit return schemes not work? I think there's a lot of reasons for the schemes to both work and not work. As we heard, a lot of it depends on how easy the system is, whether or not it's hard for a consumer to figure out where the returns need to go. But also, in, for example, in the United States, these bottle bills are seen as a tax. And one of the things that happened, for example, in New York State, the bottle bill initiated with a nickel, five cents, and over time, uh, a nickel was worth less. So as the nickel was worth less, people had less incentive to return their bottles and cans. We eventually got the rate up to a dime, 10 cents, and the rates went up. But as we heard in Germany, rates are 25 euro cent, and the rates are really, really high, along with a good infrastructure. So that's a fantastic way to have a great success rate. So it has to do with cost, it has to do with ease, and it has to do with the overall infrastructure. And again, the incentives right, I guess, at every stage. The money flow is always very important. What should that look like for a successful scheme? Who gets the money back is a big question. Is it going to go to the manufacturers, the Cokes and Pepsis of the world? Is it going to go to the retailers, the grocery stores? I think that's a good place for it if they have to do a lot of the work, or is it going to go back to the consumers who end up paying that tax? I think getting the money back to the consumers is probably the first line, and then to the grocery stores, or the retailers, and then lastly, if it has to go back to the manufacturers, because they're making the most money along the chain anyway. We've heard a lot about collaboration the past couple of days, thinking in terms of DRS schemes, and also broader collaboration around plastic waste. You've been around for some time um, and I've seen a lot of collaboration. What do you think that good collaboration needs to look like to really get to grips with the kind of plastic waste problem we've got? Plastic waste or any other kind of problem that we're dealing with, we definitely are going to need to collaborate because there's no one organization, for-profit, non-for-profit government that's going to be large enough to deal with all these problems. Collaboration is going to be key and collaboration begins with trust. And without that trust, nothing will work well. And in order to have that trust, we're going to need more transparency. What are the motivations? What are the incentives? Who's getting what? And how can we come up with a system where the benefits start with equity? We have to support the people and the countries that have been hit first and worst and are suffering the most, those in the, on frontline communities, those who live near industrial plants that are suffering from plastic waste. And then I think that the benefits should roll upward. A rising tide will lift all ships. And it has to be like that as well. We can't just have more profits for big companies because that's not going to get us there. But we've had a lot of conversations over the past couple of days, some really interesting points from lots of different organizations and companies. What have given you hope from reflecting on what you've heard from the days? So at the Overbrook Foundation, we're looking for organizations, nonprofit organizations that can punch above their weight, that are making a big impact. And over the last few days, I've met with several nonprofits and I've heard from a number of startup companies or those who actually are beyond the startup stage that are making a big impact. They're innovating for environmental change that's going to lead us into the next decade and potentially into the next century. So when I look out in the room, having worked on environmental issues for some 40 years now, I see a lot of young, super smart people that are innovating great solutions. Unfortunately, we created a lot of the problems. My generation created a lot of the problems that they have to solve. 
But the beauty of it is there are plenty of people out here at this workshop these last few days that aren't running from the problem, but they're attacking it. And they're attacking it with creative, innovative, entrepreneurial solutions that are going to be good for people and the planet. I couldn't agree more. Over the past couple of years at this, this event, it's really now at the solution stage. And there's also exciting solutions emerging. And that is a reason for hope. Daniel Katz, thanks very much. Thank you again for having me. Joining me now is Sebastian Munden, who's chairman of RAP. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me in. We've been talking about consumer engagement and how businesses can engage with consumers around moving the needle on plastic and plastic wastes. How should companies be engaging with their consumers now on these issues? It's a mistake to think about companies telling customers what to do. Customers have very clear questions around where do I return this pack material? Is it a good pack material? Work that we've done at RAP with search engines shows that those are the big questions to start with, which is what's this material? Is it good? And how do I get it back to where it's got to get to? The starting point is thinking about what the consumer is really concerned about. The second part is that really it's our job as producers, as retailers, to think about how we make the experience intuitive so that the easy option is the right option. That's not putting it all on the householder to do all the figuring out. They expect their supermarkets to do it. They expect the people who've made the products to do it. They've got to, as it were, choice edit and make those choices and make the best choices and tell their customers that we've made the best choice. And if they want to know, here's where you can find it. But I think it's a mistake to think that information is gonna change behavior. What changes behavior is the experience of the purchase and the choice making. It strikes me that there's a real element now of we don't want brands to follow what consumers want necessarily. It's need brands to take the lead and bring consumers with them. Completely right. Many people will say, I'm struggling just to get the recycling right. I think I'm doing all right. But you need to tell me what the right choices are. And if I discover that you're actually telling me the wrong thing, then I'll make different choices. And I don't think this is a niche. I don't think a lot of people say, oh, there's this just very privileged shoppers. Actually, no, it's shoppers in all income brackets are saying, no, you've got to make the right choices for me. But I do think this is a massive innovation opportunity because potentially for product manufacturers, optimizing the products that they have today, yes, they'll probably at some point get savings from less materials, better materials. But in reality, there's a big opportunity to change the way people experience products and solve pain points in a different way to create new business models. And that's why I think the title of this conference is really right, Turn Material Risk into Business Opportunity. But that's not just thinking about material replacement. That's about thinking, what am I actually offering customers and how can I offer it to them in a more convenient and better way? And what effective messaging should companies be thinking about then? What's the kind of messaging that's going to work in this respect? In a way, I'm not a big fan of messaging because I think it's the company that's made the product have to make all the right choices and then make that product appealing and clear about what pain points it solves. If you do that, you don't really have to get into messages about materials. You really need to get into just solving those problems. I think there's a lot of work that will be done to get curbside <coughs> recycling rates up in England from the low 50s up to the kind of 90s uh, that we see in some other countries. That's going to take a change in the recycling system rather than the product system. Does that mean deposit return schemes? 
I think it's better. The silver lining for the UK nations coming a bit later to some of the choices that are available is that you can take advantage of new technologies and new opportunities. If it were me, I would get curbside and extended producer responsibility at curbside perfect. And then having done that, work out what are the additional requirements that are needed on the go and potentially look to make digital DRS using one-time QR codes part of a big EPR system. In the end, these are all extra costs for producers and retailers. And so I'd be very, very thoughtful about adding EPR and DRS at a point in time where we're looking at cost of living crisis for citizens. We've had a lot of exciting innovative solutions discussed over the past couple of days. Someone said to me just earlier in a break that they felt there was a lot of positivity in the room, something that in the past there perhaps wasn't. Are there any other areas then that give you particular hope looking forward that we can solve the plastic waste crisis, we can really get to grips with this packaging problems that we've had? Yeah, there is an increasing amount of innovation around materials, but also I think innovation around moving from maybe products to as a service maybe less in the food industry, but more generally, rental models, return models, pre-love models. I think that's super exciting against the bigger issue of material circularity. But even in the food industry, you know, I think we've all got to work really hard on unrefillable models, which potentially can solve pain points for customers in a new way. It's great to hear that um, the solutions are there and they are developing. Sebastian Munden, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Joining me now is Steve Hardman from Plastic Collective. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. We've been talking about plastic credits. What are plastic credits? Plastic credits, very similar to carbon credits, they're an instrument that allows brands to buy environmental impact in the form of plastic collection and plastic recycling to offset against the plastic that they put into the environment and uh, the plastic that they put into the market that goes unrecycled. Could be a polluter's charter. How would they sit within the context of company commitments to reduce plastic use? Yeah, that's we would refer to that as plastic mitigation plans. All companies should have plastic mitigation plans and if they choose to do a plastic credit program as a part of that mitigation plan, it needs to be credible and it needs to address plastic. Now, if they don't have a mitigation plan, then use plastic credits. They are at risk of being accused of buying a license to continue polluting. In the same way that any company can only credibly buy carbon offsets if they are at the same time reducing their carbon emissions as fast as possible and as swiftly as possible. So it's the same argument there. Tell us a bit about some of the projects that you invest in. We work with about 30 projects around the world at the moment uh, at different stages of their journey to generate plastic credits. The one that we talk about the most is a project in Ghana, Accra, which is probably the most advanced. We've completed their certification to generate credits and they're just beginning to generate credits and we've been able to pre-sell many of their credits which has helped them out enormously and we're currently working on quite a major transaction for them to finance them for the next 10 years and if that transaction goes through then they will expand their capacity from 3,000 tonnes of plastic processing per year to 16,000 tonnes within the next three years. So it will be a real game changer for them. Accra, of course, has no municipal <coughs> waste collection. 
Could plastic credits going forward be used to develop municipal waste collection facilities in cities like Accra but other places around the world? Yeah, absolutely. This is a big problem in emerging nations. And because plastic has a value, even in emerging nations, then there is a scenario where plastic credits could finance the development of plastic recycling in, in these countries and then eventually morph into municipal waste management services across the full portfolio of waste. That again would give the sort of buy benefits that you get from carbon projects where the, kind of the infrastructures are improved, the community livelihoods are improved, economic benefits are improved, and a very similar process. Absolutely. It's a really significant thing. I mean, of course, there is the benefit the plastic credits provide the, the brands, but there's the social and environmental impact that goes along with it. But if you could also deliver municipal waste management services that don't previously exist, then it really is quite game-changing. How are the credits costed? How does that work? Completely market-driven, but certain characteristics affect the price of credits. Projects which come out of emerging nations, ironically, are typically more valuable because of the social and environmental impact that they always make. For example, the project in Accra, operated by women who previously lived in poverty, they protect a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the project is owned by the community, etc, etc. And so these characteristics, we call it charisma, will help drive the price up. It's an interesting real-world solution, and let's see where it goes. But thanks very much indeed, Steve. Pleasure. by Innovation Forum's Katie Ball. Hi Katie. Hi Ian. You ran this event. What were you expecting from the two days? We were expecting to cover a lot of very complex topics. So we really dove into chemical recycling, material dilemmas, the evolving legislative landscape. So a lot of constantly evolving and technical and very complex supply chain issues. We're hoping to get really deep into a lot of these super challenging issues that a lot of brands, retailers, and other organizations don't necessarily know what the next year, let alone five years, looks like. What do you think that we actually got from the two days? I think our speakers did a really good job of setting the scene, of giving our attendees a background on these issues, but then also supplying those practical examples, the case studies, the obstacles that many have overcome internally and challenges they've faced, as well as forward-thinking solutions and just dropping in ideas that may not work for every organization, but certainly are very applicable for many in the room to pick and choose what works best for their consumers and their business strategies. What do you think we should include in next year's agenda? Policies, it was a big one this year, but I think next year will be even more interesting because we'll have the results of all the INC meetings, Global Plastics Treaty, guidance and compliance regulations will have come out at that point. Many brands and retailers are setting the groundwork, they're doing the work now, but in a year's time, we're gonna have a, a good idea of the impact that that's truly having internally in their organizations. Yep, I think you're right, it's gonna be a big year. Mm -hmm. Katie, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Ian. joined by my colleague Tanya Richard. Hi, Hi Tanya. Ian. So we've just done a wrap-up session following the panel of the Future in Plastics and Packaging event here in Amsterdam. What are you taking away from the event? I can see my headers already, but Plastics Treaty is a huge one. I'm sure that's been mentioned in a lot of the videos that you've been recording, but it's being seen as a once in a lifetime opportunity, but then trying to see how to actually make it that, how do we actually get together, bring all of the different actors that need to be brought together. Our conferences are very business focused, but we need to make sure that we're bringing all of those actors together to make sure it actually is what it's set out to be. Yeah, I agreed. It needs to be comprehensive and take account of all the other work that's been done the EU directives, for example, um, and ensure that it, can, it does establish best practice. 
for me, a really interesting conversations around the need for education with consumers, for communication with consumers. In fact, we've just had a session where we were told not to call them consumers in terms of customers or citizens. But I think it's really important that there is that element of collaboration around getting the messaging right. We did hear today of instances where manufacturers were being required to, in fact, increase their emissions footprint by retailers mm -hmm. because of the way that they want the packaging to change. And we need to get away from thinking that all plastic is bad. It kind of feels that we are getting away from that, but there's still an element of that around, which I think is really challenging. Any other things that yeah. took your fancy? I mean, the, compared to our other conferences, the plastics one where in innovation is so big. Like there's so many cool startups and so many cool ideas that are really being tried to scale. Um, it seems like there's a kind of a resounding agreement that there is everything that we need out there. It's just about trying to bring it the speed to market, how to scale it, how to reduce the barriers of legislation and regulatory barriers um, to try and get them there. A lot of companies don't want to work with them if they don't have the right volume to work with them. So how yeah. do we get them to that level so that we can then get to that level? So th it's out there. It's just working together to try and get it scaled. To, to scale. I know, exactly. To, the scale is a big issue. There are a lot of conversations around feedstock and scale and, mm. those, and concerns around who should have the right feedstock, where should the feedstock go, what's the best use of it. Something that really caught my attention. Last year, there was a lot of negativity around the potential of chemical recycling processes. This mm. year, it felt that there was a significantly greater acceptance that chemical recycling is going to be part of the process. It's going to mm -hmm. be, you know, alongside more efficient mechanical recycling, chemical recycling processes are necessarily going to be part of the mix because of the ability to get back to the virgin quality products that so many specific plastic uses require, the kind of medical use, the food mm -hmm. use as well. So it's been a really interesting conference. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you say that is for next year. Well, <laughs> what was going to be the change for next year? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Someone pointed out just at the very end, you know, will we start to see a backlash against paper? Because consumers are being educated and they will realise that sometimes paper isn't the right solution. So maybe, you know, we were joking, maybe we'll make it the future of paper and packaging <laughs> conference in 2028. Tanya, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Coming up now is the next in my colleague B. Stevenson's Farmer Voices series with a conversation she had with cotton farmer Kamuda Ben Satishbhai Tad Avi, a resident of Viyadar village in the Narmada district, Gujarat in India. They talked about the real-life impacts of extreme weather events. Event. Could you possibly just begin by introducing yourself and talking about the kind of farm that you work on? My name is Kamudini Ben Satish Bhai Tadvi. I'm resident of Vyadhar village in Narmada district of Gujarat. I'm a cotton farmer. I know that many parts of your country have been impacted by extreme weather patterns and very high temperatures in recent years. I was wondering how your experience of cotton farming and your livelihood have perhaps been impacted. The extreme weather patterns like rising temperature, inconsistent monsoon, high intensity rainfall in short time. So this has impacted our crop yield. Similar thing happened uh, during last year and we had experienced uh, very heavy rain in short time. Due to this, there was uh, waterlogging conditions in field and our crop was affected. Also, due to heavy rains, the soil also got uh, degraded. Similar conditions has been erratic uh, and we have been experiencing such things uh, often now. And for you, what happens if you do have a reduced yield or if the soil quality is poorer? 
the yield is not enough or is less it affects our economic life our regular expenditures are affected it affects the education level of our children it also affects the animal husbandry which we do so overall uh, less yield is impacting their lives are you able to adapt to these challenges in any way or how might you be able to adapt to them with the poorer soil quality or heavier rains or droughts? Are there any ways that you could overcome these challenges or with support might be able to in the future? So currently I'm working, uh, meaning I'm voluntary working as a change leader under the Women Climate Ambassador Program of Cotton Connect implemented by the Vasundara Foundation since September 22. And as a change leader, I have been part of training programs organized by Cotton Connect and Vasundara Foundation on different aspects of climate change and supplementary and providing trainings to other 30 women farmers. Uh, we are also ensuring that uh, not only uh, we give them theoretical knowledge, but we are also preparing organic manures and which the uh, women farmers, they use it in their farms. And we have seen that 20% uh, reduction in terms of input cost they have seen. Because uh, in general, if this organic manures are not used, then they used to earlier uh, use the pesticides and all. So instead of that, now this has improved the quality of soil also and has reduced the input cost. I also wanted to ask you, Kamidavan, how else Cotton Connect have helped you and other farmers in their program to produce maybe a more sustainable crop that might also benefit your livelihoods? I have learned the cotton crop uh, safe harvesting technique during the program and uh, now we are taking care that our final product of cotton is contamination free. Uh, we store our cotton in good conditions with cover and ensuring that uh, it will reach to the ginning unit in good quality. Earlier that used to you know get affected and the cotton used to be contaminated. The local agents are buying our cotton. Also, else we must earlier we used to go to the nearby ginners for sale of our cotton. From this year, we are also trying to unite all the other farmers also so that we can go for a collective sale. So collectively, a group of farmers can go and uh, we can get good price of cotton and low cost of transportation would further help us. So so these inputs which have been given by Cotton Connect and Basundara Foundation are helping us as a farmer community. Thank you very much, Kamidavan, for joining me on the podcast today and sharing your experiences. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for the latest in our content series, collaborating with Pamela Business Sound Derby Plantation, analysing some of the potential impacts of the EU deforestation regulation. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.